Welcome to the Hope Revolution messages. You'll be able to find our sermon podcast at hoperevolution.church forward slash sermon, as well as all other podcast players. We hope you enjoy this message. So good to be with you guys. Now, I'm feeling a bit awkward at the moment because whenever I speak and I ask Matt if I could do this, it's so good to be back with you, and thank you so much for the prayers, and those words are, are just spot on. I'm turning 60 this year, I know I don't look a day over 30, thank you very much. <laughs> and things are, things are shifting for me, I, I, I don't need to share that at the moment, but part of that is moving into this new space of, I've, I've been a counsellor for a number of years, I'm, I'm the head of theology at Alpha Crucis University College, which means I, I, it sounds sort of procedures, it just means I've got a lot of admin to do. Um, I've been teaching and, and as as some of you may know, being being part of Kaleidoscope, which is I've shared with, with KJ's family for a number of years and sadly when when Marnie, when, when Michelle passed, Trudy and I felt to close the community because we were in this together. We couldn't we we just didn't feel um, Michelle and Mick and Trudy and I always said that if one of us as a couple left, that was it for the community. Not because the community rises and falls on us, but we're just in this together and we knew it was right time. And, and so a year and a half ago, we, we closed that and, and, and moved back into a more traditional, I'm, I'm credentialed with the, um, the ACC a community which um, at one stage was a bit, I was a bit of a reluctant ACC credentialed person because they're Pentecostal, right? You know what Pentecostals are like, Daniel, don't you? You know, um, and uh, I, was, I was not quite like that. But one of the things you've been talking about this morning is, is going where God calls and, and doing what God calls. And in order to maintain certain aspects of my job, I had to go back into an ACC church, which was a bit of a bummer, really. But uh, um, I've actually found home there. But what's, what it's done is it's actually restored a cup of things. First of all, creativity. Um, I'm not the arty-farty type. Um, I am a touchy-feely person, so I like playing with Play-Doh. But um, I've gone back into the praise and worship space, which after 15 years of burnout was quite fascinating because that was dead. But I've also just had so many opportunities, including this, to get back and start to just to see things unlocked in the wider church. And I'm nothing great. I'm just a little old kid from Dunedin, New Zealand. That's why I've got an accent. And grew up around Queenstown and, and toured the same. I chased the same rocks that uh, Lord of the Rings did. In fact, uh, I look at the movie and say, I've been there. I've, I've actually ran around those rocks. <laughs> it's quite bizarre, really, when you go to a movie and you realise that was, that was part of your childhood. But the thing that amazes me is that when I look back on, on the many years... I could have easily have walked away, but I counted a real privilege to continually be confronted by a God who keeps throwing me back into a space that I feel totally ill-equipped for, totally inadequate, but that when I said yes to God so many years ago, he, he basically reminded me that no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love him, for every single one of us. And it's not it's not about how big we are, what prestigious role we carry. I, I grew up in a communication home, and this is a very long introduction, I should get going because I won't have time for my message. I grew up in a, in a communication home where my father was a world-class communicator, won awards, he ran um, a thing called Toastmasters in New Zealand which trained people in communication and it was one of the fastest growing social organisations in the world. And people say, well, what's so social about teaching someone how to communicate? Do you know the two top fears of people in the world? What's the first fear? Speaking in front of people, what's the second fear? No, fear of flying. And uh, I'm a pilot who actually teaches people how not to crash planes. I was anyway in New Zealand. Um, but I, I grew up under a father who knew how to communicate and I learned all of the bad habits. So anything that, <laughs> anything that my dad would do, I'm not doing at the moment. But I, I realised just the power of words, the power of communication, and I, I, I'm thankful that God has given me an open door to share that. But I do want to say something about my role as, as has been talked about here. The thing about it is there's this power in words. There's power in words. There's power in communication. But there's power in communication when you align yourself with the great communicator. God spoke and the world came into being. In fact, someone, some rabbis say God sung. And the world came into being. In fact, there's a real rhythm and moment when words align. But one of the things I've realised is that words don't mean anything unless it's grounded in both reality 
and in the one who creates reality and um, very privileged. But as a, as a counsellor and as, a, as now moving into professional supervision, which is the new role that I'm training for, uh, which is very significant when you started praying this prayer because all of a sudden, once I started training in professional supervision, which is a new role for me, I've just had so many opportunities open up and the government's going to start mandating what you guys have released a certain pastor that I'm not allowed to tell you because of confidentiality. <laughs> um, and that's part of the problem, being a, being a counsellor and a professional supervision. You say, oh, so you're seeing so-and-so. No, yeah, no, I can't tell you. Um, and so you can say it, I can't confirm it. <laughs> so uh, one of the privileges of that space is it's a space where we, we, we journey together and explore creatively what God is doing in our lives and I just want to affirm what Cal says that and I've been in ministry most of my life both in professional ministry and in in just ordinary volunteer ministry and I know that what ministry does is we carry together each other's burdens we carry together each other's life and what we don't often realize is we, we get fragmented Right, where all of a sudden we get a little bit fractured here, a little bit wounded there, a little bit broken here and there. And we all carry this together as a community. And this is a great community for that. As leaders, we carry that even more because we know we're responsible to help defragment and bring healing to wounds and to help fracturedness. You with me? Um, and it's not that we're anything special. It's just that's our job. <laughs> but if we don't actually take time out to, how many people know computers here? <laughs> Defragment yeah. aspects of our own life. That fragmentation that is, it, it's actually ours to carry. It's not, a, it's not a martyr syndrome. It's just what we do. If we don't take time, and if, if all of you don't take time at times just to defragment, which is sifting through and separating things that have got blurred and start to leak that shouldn't leak so that you can be a better you, then all of a sudden you find yourself at the capacity of what you've been created for. And the things that break you, the things that break your spirit, that break your life, are the things that could have been easily fixed by a creative conversation, a time out, a moment. And so I, I, I count it a real privilege to be part of this community in this space, but also I just, I just think, you know, it's awesome what you guys are doing. So keep doing what you're doing, you know, and if, if you are finding yourself at the capacity of your life, we go, every time I wake up, I just wake up so stressed and just going, oh my goodness, what's life going to throw? Go and talk to someone here and, and get, go and see your doctor and get a referral. Go and talk to someone. Talking actually isn't a dangerous thing, men. <laughs> talking, talking actually isn't a dangerous thing when it's done with the right person because they're not there to tell you what to do. They're there to help defragment so that you can actually find what you're strong in and what you need to do for the rest of your, your, your day, your week, your life, so that you can be the better person you can be. So I, I just count that a real privilege. So thank you very much for your, for your introduction. I was given a text today because when we were talking about coming and speaking, I, I was given the opportunity to speak for, for two weeks. Unfortunately, I'd booked out last week at another community that I'm, that I'm a part of, and Matt said, why don't you come and talk to us about Paul? Because I've just spent the past 10 years studying Paul. Not the Paul of Acts, because that's Luke's Paul, but the Paul of the letters in Galatians. And I came out the other end. Finally, they said, yes, okay, we'll accept your heresy. It's about to come out in a book in June, which is really exciting for me, other than the fact that it's going to cost well over a hundred bucks. And it's only really for libraries and academic people that uh, need a big dictionary and, and like spouting big words. I promised my mother that when the book came out, I would actually write a book. Not This isn't to dumb it down, but write a book for her where she didn't need the dictionary. So what I'm hoping to do is I, I studied the spirit in Galatians and Christian identity, and I'm going to write a, a study guide to the spirit and Christian identity in Galatians. And I have a friend who said, I don't read books. He said, but I'll read your book. I said, yeah, you're right. He said, no, no, I will. I said, okay, here's the challenge. I'm going to write a chapter at a time. We're going to go through it, and I'm going to put his questions at the end of the chapter that are actually going to help 
me connect because when you're dealing with academic, you're always you're always thinking at a weird level. And sometimes our words get in the road of stuff. And um, I'm going to write a book in, in Galatians, so I'm looking forward to that. That keeps me connected to both the the technical thinking that you mentioned, the creativity in mind, but also keeping me with ministry. But uh, I'm going to shut up now and get on with the message. It's really interesting um, when you actually are given a passage like uh, Acts 13, uh, 1 to 12, um, what are you going to do with a passage that says what it says? You could read it and say, right, sermon over. And I was actually thinking of doing that. I was actually thinking of, let's just read it and go home because, you know, it's really, really good. But I thought I'd call it a worship service, um, um, a worship service, a commissioning and a really cool trick. Now, that really cool trick's in triple question mark because you've got to ask yourself, what do you mean by a really cool trick? It will make sense after I get to it. It's a passage in, in two sections, Acts 13, 1 to 3, that sets up for the next passage at which, at which the really cool trick is. So you're really anticipating the really cool trick? Fantastic. It, it, um, it starts with this little short story, and it says this. Now, in the church at Antioch, and this is a church that isn't Jerusalem, really, really important. In the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Very interesting, prophets and teachers. You go, that's really weird. Where are the pastors, the evangelists, and the apostles? But that's beside the point. Here they are. There were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, isn't it funny? Actually, when you fast, you actually slow, don't you? You stop eating and you slow because if you go fast, you actually don't have any energy to go fast. I don't know why they call it fasting, but that's okay. And while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and boot, sorry, sent them off, right? So this is very interesting. When you actually start to look at this, when you actually look at this, it says, it actually starts really the verse before. And it says this in, in the last part of Acts 12, which you might have covered last week or another time. Yeah. Uh, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem. That's meant to be Antioch square bracket. I just wanted to say that. Antioch, uh, taking with them John, also called Mark. So all of a sudden, in the midst of this narrative about Peter, who belongs to the church in Jerusalem, you get the story about Barnabas and Paul that we'd met before. Now, we met Paul, right, at the feet of Stephen, at the place where Stephen was being stoned, not, not you know, with rocks, not... And, and he's being stoned, and Saul's there, who later becomes Paul. Saul's there, and he gets really, really angry at the message that's going on. And he pushes off and decides to go on a bit of a rant and a rage to actually deal with this small sect who aren't yet called Christians, but these followers of this person that got crucified by the Romans and died and was actually causing a bit of a stir because he, Paul, or Saul, was really, really peeved off at what they were doing to his God. We think he's really angry because he's just an angry person, but he was so zealous for God that he was going to deal with anybody that was dissenters. And we first meet Paul on the road to Damascus. He gets knocked off a donkey. He hears a voice that stutters, Saul, 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 Saul. It was actually just emphasis. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Oh, I don't know who you are who I'm persecuting. So he doesn't know. He says, who are you, Lord? And we go, well, that's a high term. It's not. It's a low term. It's just, who are you, sir? You've been, you must be pretty important because you knocked me off a horse or a donkey, depending on the version you use. And he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you persecuted. And he goes, no, 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 I saw Jesus. Oh, crap. <laughs> it's basically Paul, right? Oh, my goodness. I saw this man crucified. I saw that this man was... And by the way, when the Romans crucified people, they were... It starts with D, ends in Ed. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> they don't come back to life, unlike Monty Python. Right? They don't come back to life. 
I saw this, and all of a sudden, his whole worldview changes because everything he expected of God to do. When God was going to show up, he was going to send his Messiah, and great things were going to happen. And all of a sudden, Paul doesn't just witness a great thing, he experiences it, and he's got to change his whole mindset. And he's Saul, this guy that's going to rant and rave and rage against what was the church. He then becomes a real advocate for the church. He pushes off to a far, far away land, maybe New Zealand, if it was in Australia, goes off to a strange land, develops and reconfigures his old thinking about his past and comes back, quite a changed man. And he's about to actually try and convince this church in Jerusalem that he's a changed man, but what are they? Afraid of him. And I would be afraid too if someone walked in the door who was a very big stick person and they had the authority to use that against me. And Paul's this, or Saul still, is this person that you go, you go, I, we understand the story because we know the end. But they don't understand the story because they're at the beginning. And Barnabas comes along. I like Barnabas. Barnabas comes along. And Barnabas is the encourager. He's the guy that holds the peace. And he stands alongside Saul and he says, no, no, guys, we've got to accept him. God's changed him. Why wouldn't you? And all the people in Jerusalem go, yeah, yeah, but do you know who this person is? Barnabas says, no, he's a good guy. This is my role. I'm a Barnabas. I'm an encourager. You know, if someone's going to come along and, and someone nasty like Hitler walks in the door, you'd go, oh, that's Hitler, put him away. I'd go, my mum was like, this. oh, no, no, let's invite him for lunch. Let's help change him. Let's, let's, he's, there's some good stuff in him. This is Barnabas comes along. And Barnabas is actually the primary, the primary person in this story here and before that. And anyway, skip a few chapters because then what you've got is you've got this focus again on Jerusalem church. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, Luke decides, right, now it's time for Barnabas and Saul to head to Antioch. What? What's happening here? And so the story is set in the midst of a change. In any story, in any performance, there's a you and a them. An us and a them. There is a me and a them. Any good story that you read invites you to not just read it for something, but enter into it. It's a performance. In fact, a Jewish reading of Scripture has got nothing to do with what principles do we have to get out to make sure we're doing the will of God? What do we do? What do we do? It actually, first of all, invites us into the story because it's our story. The whole of the Old Testament narrative, the, the, the Genesis through to the end of the prophets, is one big story that doesn't tell them about their history then. It tells them about their history now, who we are. And they, every time they read it, they enter into it as if they are journeying with it. And so it doesn't become an us and a them, it becomes an us and a we. And I invite you to think about that as we go, because in part, this is what you're being called to do. All of a sudden, there's a shift from Peter, who's the foot and mouth disciple who always gets it wrong, who's part of the head of Jerusalem church, to actually now shift into this narrative. You go, what's that about? But right at the start of Acts, Luke intimates that this is going to happen. Now, just three very interesting points here. First of all, John Mark, it's not, didn't have a hyphenated name. John is probably his Hebrew name. Mark is his Roman name. When you live in empire, anyone who lives in empire will always have two names. You'll have your home name, your family name, and you'll have the empire name. And you actually find this all the way through the New Testament, that certain names turn up that seem to be the same person, but they're different. So for instance, my home name is Grant, and under the empire of Australian politics, I'm Hey You. You know, <laughs> who or who are you? It's like Elijah. Um, Elijah turns up in, 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 in um, 1 Kings, and to Obadiah, his servant, he's, Oh Lord and Master, my, my Lord and Master. Uh, and then to the King Ahab, he's, Oh Troubler of Israel. You know, it's all perspective, right? But anyway, there's John, there's Mark, two, two different names. And of course, Mark is, or John Mark is Barnabas' cousin. Very, very important when someone preaches later on, when Barnabas and Mark hoof off 
away from Paul. And we often read Barnabas and Mark in light of a later story where it seems they disagree with Paul and we think that Paul is the most important person of the story and we think Paul's got it right. I actually don't believe that. I believe what happened is that when you actually understand the heart of an encourager, the heart of encourager philosophically cannot remain in leadership over or always in relationship, intimate relationship with someone who is a, a, an apostle establisher because what the encourager pastor wants to do is sit alongside people. What the other person needs to do is get out there and establish. And I only say that because you're going to come to that part of the story and you're going to go, but Grant, it sounds like Barnabas did the wrong thing. Did he? And why did Mark hoof off with Barnabas? The family. KJ and I are like family. We've hung out for 20 years. We're family. So what do family do, especially in that culture? It's really hard to break. And we think that Mark, and Mark was the catalyst for the breakup, we think that Barnabas got it wrong. He didn't. He just did what family did and what an encourager does and realized it's time. We can't stay together. Now, that might be my heresy, but I'll stick with it. You see, it all starts, remember, it starts with Jerusalem, and then it, it sort of all of a sudden takes this huge shift. And the shift was exactly what Luke said in 1 8 would happen. Can someone read that for me very loudly, please? You will receive power. Power! Yeah. So we've had Jerusalem. You see, we should actually be anticipating the fulfillment of this. And we're going, it's all about Jerusalem. It's all about Pete. It's all, oh, hang on, there's Barnabas. And, but it's all about Pete. In fact, Barnabas and, and, and Saul were actually in Jerusalem because that was the center of the universe. I grew up uh, in Dunedin, the center of the universe, until I was 18 and I went to India and realized I wasn't the center of the universe. I went back to India at the beginning of this year after 40 years of, of gap and I found some things are the same and some things are different. The things that I found the same were the food and, of course, the consequence of the food, but that's okay. <laughs> and, you know, um, yes, I got daily belly, and, uh, but that's okay. The, the, the fact is that when I went to India, it was like, oh, my goodness, there is a world out there that is not me, and it was just a, a, an amazing eye-opener. But you see, up till now, it's all been Jerusalem. It's been a Jerusalem-centric, Jerusalem-focused, and people say, yeah, because that was the most important place. It wasn't. It was actually the starting point, and we can often miss that when we walk through a story because your story and my story are the same. We started somewhere, but we're not where we started. When you look back in life, you go, ah, I'm not there. I'm here. How did I get here? And for each one of us, if I sat down with you, you go, oh, well, this happened and that happened. And you relay stories and people and moments and circumstances and God events and God moments. And that's what helps you get from A to B. But you're a different person today than you were how many years ago? The story is more important to understand, not from the start, but actually through the process looking back, that what the start brought us. Everything that we're going to talk about next week at Easter started and was centered around Jerusalem. Very important. Why? Because that was the center of Judaism, the center of the temple where they believed that's where God hung out, that's where God's salvation would come to and through, and they believed that everything that God promised would make Israel numero uno. Number one. God had a different purpose. In fact, Jerusalem was never meant to be the center of the universe. Started off in the Old Testament. I chose you not because you were great. I chose you not because you were numerous. I chose you because I loved you. And I wanted to make people jealous of that relationship. And you'll be my witnesses when you actually reflect my character. Where? To the whole of the world. What did Israel do? We want to have it for ourselves. And what did God keep doing? Brought them back. He said, no, even in Babylon. Babylon, which the Bible actually, the interesting thing with the Hebrew word Babylon is Babel, Babel. 
same word. We add the elon on to distinguish it from Babel. But in fact, in Hebrew, it's Babel, Babel. Because Babel represents everything that is not God. Everything that is humanity turned in on itself, which is sin. Humanity turned in on itself where it says, we will become great. We will become the center of the universe. We will do everything our way. And so what does God do to punish Israel? Sends them off to Footscray. Because we know what Footscrayans are like, don't we? Yeah, good foot, foot, foot display. That's right. Good foot, foot display. Foot display. And we know what people are like there. And how can God be there? Because we know what the people are like. And so what does God do? He sends them off to exile and they go, how can we sing a Lord's song in a strange land by the rivers of Babylon? There we sat down. And you've got this amazing story of Israel that goes, we are lost because we're not back in Jerusalem with a temple. And so what does God call them to do in Jeremiah 29? Settle down. Build houses. Oh, so if we plant a garden, build a house, then you'll come back. No, no, no. I then want you to have kids. That's a long time. Well, it's at least nine months. Then I want you to marry those kids. You do not get married at nine months. You get married in your teens all of a sudden the timeline for God's redemption pushes out from being everything happens in Jerusalem to everything happens where God is not where you think God should be or you should be got that as you prosper the city will prosper but it's footscray God Uh, sorry Babylon It's a place where you're not. Your temple's not here. The normal religiosity of that place is not here. God says, you've got it wrong. Because when you are there, I am there. When you prosper, the city will prosper. And as the city prospers, you'll prosper. How long, O God? How long? 70. It's a good, good, good guess. It's got the wrong number at the beginning, but that's okay. 70. Years. And people go, oh, well, I could do that. No, you couldn't. Do you realize that 70 years back then, the average age of, of a guy was probably 35 or 40? A woman would um, reach maybe 50, 55. Pretty hard times. That meant that whatever generation was going to be returned was not the generation that left. It's, in fact, equivalent of three generations. We often miss that in the story because we're not walking through the story. We're looking back over and using our call to participate. And people are going, oh my goodness, that's all. I'm, you want, I'm lost because everything that I thought was going to happen was back at the start. The glory is the temple. And so what does God do? He says, don't worry, I've got a plan. And then he restores them and someone else builds a temple. And it's actually bigger than the first temple. It is so bright, you've got to wear shades, literally, because when the sun was on it, it was so bright, and that was a temple. Um, here they, they came back and they restored the temple, but it wasn't to its fullest glory, the Solomon Temple. It was actually Herod later on that built a temple, and it was on the Temple Mount in the same place. It was so bright, and he wanted this, that everyone that came towards Jerusalem on a certain day was blinded by the light. It was so bright and so big because Herod wanted to make a name for himself in that place so they'd accept him because he was from the, um, the place where the Petra is, you know, the, the rock city. Uh, he wasn't Jewish. They wouldn't accept him. So he paid Rome and he paid the Jewish people to like him. And it's in this place that they expect God to show up. The starting point. We're back to the glory days. We're back to the glory place. And in this place, God says, I'll do something. The first thing he does is he sends his son, the one who looks like him, sounds like him, acts like him, leaks like him, right? Leaks like him. In other words, everything Jesus does looks like this God as God intended, but not like as the Pharisees or the high priests or the teachers of the law wrote about God. They rewrote the story. They kept forgetting to look back and realizing the reason why they got into exile and they got told off was because they forgot who their God was and who they were under that God. You with me so far? It's good. And you've got the story 
that seems to go back to the start. And they go, oh, finally we're back in Jerusalem. We're back in Jerusalem where everything can happen. And you know, in Acts 1 or Acts 2, they were all together in that place. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit that they expected after exile to come back into the temple. And by the way, Ezekiel says, I actually saw the Spirit of God rise up above the lintel of the temple, and then he hoofed off. And where was he? With them in in, in Babylon. He was with them in Babylon, right? And he was with them because God was trying to show them it wasn't about the temple, it wasn't about the starting point, it was about the fact, the journey, the call, what God wants to do matters. And I haven't even got any of this in my message. I just felt, is that okay? Are we okay to do this? And um, you've, got this, you've got this story that seems to come back to the center. And it's amazing that in Acts 2, it says they were all together in that one place. And then it's like the Spirit of God filled the room and tongues of fire and and etc, etc. There are over 120 people in that space. And by the way, it can't have been the upper room of Acts 1 because the upper room in Acts 1 was no bigger than an average sized toilet. Well, bathroom or small kitchen. No personal space. But the portico of the temple which is called Solomon's porch, very interesting, is also the same word used for house or upper room. And that, to the rabbis, was where the spirit was going to come back. It was the place of teaching. It was the place of, of, of hope. It was the place that looked down on the temple to actually see what was going on. And it says the spirit of God came upon people and then the spirit of God walks out from the temple. Because now the Spirit of God was in its right place, not in the middle of a building built by a wannabe pseudo-king, but on the very people that God wanted to carry into the rest of the world to be witnesses. Isn't that powerful? We have a story of David who goes and steals back the Ark of the Covenant. You wonder how the Ark of the Covenant ever got stolen but it gets stolen, gets, gets taken by the Philistines. And I know they're, they're next to Footscray, right? It's, um, it's, yeah, it's Collingwood. And you've got, this, you've, got this, you've got these people that steal the presence of God. So David goes to actually bring the presence of God back and he sticks it on a horse and cart. That, that's good because otherwise people would have to carry it. No, it's hot and, you know, we can only carry it so far. And Man, this is heavy and you want me to do what? And, oh, mate, I came to Australia. I didn't know what 30 degrees was. Whenever we had 30 degrees in New Zealand, our streets melted. Our whole country, or our city stopped, not in Auckland, because we'd never had over 25 degrees. It was a heat wave if it was 22 degrees and we'd all go off to the beach. I didn't know what heat was until I came here. And you know, you can imagine people carrying this, this beast of a box with the presence of the Lord for miles and kilometers and kilometers and the dust and the heat. And so they're sticking on a horse and cart. That's very innovative, David. And then all of a sudden, the oxen trip and stumble because they have roads that are potholed like we've had after the pandemic. And you've got this, this potholed road And all of a sudden, the cart starts to fall, and Uzzah, a very faithful person, goes, no, we don't want the presence of God to stop. And and he reaches out and puts it back, and then he dies. And David says, what the heck are you doing, God? What did God say to David? My presence was not meant to be carried by horse or donkey and cart. It was meant to be carried by people, the priests. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I'm not a royal priesthood. We, in Kiwi language, we, only, we have you, but not sheep, you. We don't have a plural for you over here. It's either you, singular, or you, and we have to put silly things. So here's the Kiwi version of you. Use. Use mob. Use fellas. In America, I've got a couple of American students. Y'all are a royal priesthood, holy nation. Very interesting. Why will we be witnesses? Because yous carry the presence of God. And that was always the intention. Not in Jerusalem at the temple, but wherever you are. 
just remember, wherever you go, there you are. And we go, if I could just bring people back to the presence of God, back into the church services, back into those places where we can go, ah, then surely they'll meet God. But do you know what God keeps doing? He keeps throwing you out into the dark places and the dark spaces and the moments and the opportunities of everyday life. Of everyday life. And that's the starting point of God's call for us as God's people. We often want to go back to the start or the primary place of the temple and God says, no, I want to take you and send you out into the spaces and the places which you already inhabit outside of that space because yous are a royal priesthood. You carry the presence of God. I carry the presence of God. Simple, is it? Not sure. But here we've got Saul and Barnabas who while they were in Jerusalem, do not represent the Jerusalem church. And they're always going to hoof it back to where they're meant to be. And all of a sudden in this story, you've got the shift away from Jerusalem. This is the significant turning point towards the rest of the world. And you and I are very, very grateful for that because if they hadn't changed the direction, we wouldn't be here today talking about this stuff. Because apart from New Zealand, we are the ends of the earth. Right? I know that New Zealand's God's own, so that makes Australia his footstool. No, just joking. <laughs> just, we are an outflow of the fact that this story shifts focus and shifts direction, and that's powerful. We're entering into the story and we're going, man. Not what do we need to get out of it, but who are we? What is this? If this is our story. And they were together in a place, like the others were in an upper room. And they were having a worship service. They were singing songs. By the way, some of you say, I can't sing. How can I worship God? Just, I, I really want to encourage you. It's not because of any judgment that I felt here today. But I really want to encourage you. Prayer and praise are like conversation that reconnect us to this God who calls us. And if you don't feel like you sing, just speak words. Because what songs do is they give words to your praise that you sometimes feel uncomfortable or uncertain to do. For some people, they write the songs. I write the songs that make the whole world sing. And you, you go, wow, I love those songs. But if, if you're not a singer, don't sing, speak it. It's called rap. Um, you know, speak the words because what they do is they put form to what we're called to do as a community. And then that'll be your, also your form when you're out there alone in your showers and in your, you know, because people sing in the showers, um, in your showers and in your workspaces. And so I really encourage you to, to actually begin to shift how you view the time of praise and worship at the beginning. For some people, it's like, I'm in, I'm in, I'm a musician, I'm a singer, I love the songs, I love singing. And that's, you know, and other people go, come on, just get on with the words. It's working together, worship and word actually helps us put frames to our understanding of who we are and who God is. So praise and prayer help us put words to the relationship that we have with God. The worship part of it refocuses on the God who in a minute is going to send us out. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to enter in as everyone else does in the sense of not everyone else, but some, someone else does. But Find a way that you can connect with whatever's going on so you can go, God, what is this focus of me and us that you're calling me and us out into the week? Because this is what this stuff's all about, is a chance to refocus, to hear from the Holy Spirit, to actually then go out from the space and be what? The walking, living, breathing temples of the Holy Spirit in the normal and the ordinary, in the, what we call the mundane. And that's beautiful. You see... Paul, and, and I'll get on with this and we'll, we'll, we'll carry on. Um, notice there's a shift from Jerusalem towards the ends of the earth, and it starts in Antioch, a very significant city because, um, can we have the next one, thanks? It, the Antioch was a very significant city because it was really the, the main center that moved from north from Jerusalem that was actually beginning to unlock the rest of the empire. 
Even though Rome was the center of the empire, it was Antioch that was the next big city. In fact, in the early church, after the New Testament, they had a bit of a barge, argy-bargy, and someone once said, a guy called Tertullian, strange name I know, but my name's Grunt. And, and um, you know, we've got these strange names going on, but Tertullian actually coined the phrase, what has Athens got to do with Jerusalem? Because they were having these fights about who was the, the best and Jerusalem were trying to control the narrative and Antioch was saying, we don't want them to control the narrative, we're different people and it's true. And so you get this going on. But there's four things that I see in, um, in um, Acts 13, 1 to 3 and we'll go through. The name suggests the diversity of the growing church outside of the mothership, Jerusalem. Most of the people in Jerusalem church were fairly monolithic. They, they looked the same, they sounded the same, they acted the same, they sang the same songs. They weren't all Jews of the same colour, but they were predominantly Jewish. They knew the culture, they fitted into the city, and they wanted everybody to look like them. If everybody could look like us, then surely we're back to the golden years of Judaism, but now with Christ at the centre, where the world would finally be able to be saved. And so what the Jerusalem church started to do was actually act like the Pharisees and control the narrative. Whereas what Antioch tells us, look at the people. Fascinating who's there. By the way, um, Simon from Niger is most likely what color skin? Yeah. Dark, brown, caramel is one of my caramel friends. He, I, I can't say that, but he calls himself caramel. But most likely dark. People from, from, from Nigel were most likely dark. Possibly the guy that carried the, the crossbeam. They suggest they don't know. Um, you've got um, Mannion is a very interesting person because he's not just a person who works with Herod. The, the word actually used is a nursing with person. He is nursed with, so it's most likely he was an adopted son of Herod. And the reason for that is Herod liked killing off his sons. Um, but he was actually most likely to be an adopted son of Herod. Look who's coming into the church. Even those that are opposing are starting to come. Um, and then uh, Lucian as well. But ministry in the church is both communal and it's relational. Ministry doesn't just happen because Matt's here. Even though there's been, a, there's been an established and there is an established leadership and eldership, ministry is always communal and it's relational. In order to, for it to be fully communal and relational, it needs to be one where you participate first as family and second then as family members, you actually pick up the task that God's called you to to do in the family first and then beyond. So when we come together, for instance, my boys took, took us a long time to train them, but we had them to do chores. Why? Because that's what families do. And so the church was actually operating on this model. There were some people who were the, the leaders in the church, and they were prophets and teachers. They weren't priests, like high priesty type people, and they weren't apostles and while you might say, well, there was no pastors, in fact, there was, because Barnabas was a bit of a pastor, the way he operated, and most teachers were pastors in those days, because that was part of the nurturing gift. So these people that you actually had there were actually being part of, there was a big worship service, big worship community, and they were together in this place. And the word there is actually, that's used there, is actually they were serving the Lord, and that word liturgis or liturgy is actually very similar to the one used in the temple of priests. So there was definitely a sense of this, this idea that we're here to honor the Lord and serve the Lord together as we come together in that space. It was during a worship service, the liturgical ministry, that Barnabas and, um, note the order, not Paul and Barnabas. And by the way, um, Paul gets more and more changed to his Roman name were set apart and commissioned by the Holy Spirit who said, take Barnabas and Saul and you commission them for the work that I have called them. And that's very, very important because we think, well, God commissions and God calls. But you see, it's in the communal space that we agree together. You have been called by the Holy Spirit for something. We release you. And sometimes that releasing might take time. It might be, hey, I feel called to this and we might go as a community Actually, you're not quite ready. 
But when you're ready, we will, we will pray for you and we will release you. Now that word isn't sent like apostle. It's actually we will release you into the things God has called you. And that means that we now are responsible to nurture that. We now are responsible to get behind that. And some of you are being called to service in the church. Some of you are being called to read your Bible. Some of you are being called to be great parents. And some of you are being called to things outside of the church or to roles within the church. We often think that this calling of God is high and spiritual and technical, and in fact, it's not always the case. Sometimes it's just ordinary, everyday work. You see, the word mundane is not a nasty word. In the days of, of, of Israel, of the New Testament, there were four different jars that were used for water. There was the special sacred jars that were used for purification ceremonies in the temple, for washing of hands and washing of bodies for the sake of worship. There was a jar that was used for drinking water. Right? Now, the jar that was used for drinking water was different than the jars that people washed their hands in in the ordinary home. We're now getting down to the mundane. The apparent lowest of the low was the jar that was used for water to wash feet. Oh, my goodness. Have you seen the state of some people's feet? But the reason for that is people walked around in sandals, bare feet, and they got very, very dirty. So when you walked into a home, when you walked into a place of work or a place of worship, you had to wash feet. And that was called the mundane, the ordinary. Um, it's called, it was actually called in um, some circles the profane. You had the sacred and the profane. And people were, oh, it's profane, you know, profanity. Ha, that's nasty. In fact, you needed the profane before you could enter into the, the sacred. The mundane and the profane was actually more prevalent and more important to everyday life than the holy water. Because without it, the whole of society didn't operate well. It's very interesting. Who washed Jesus' feet when he was reclining at the table of Simon the leper? And one, it's Mary Magdalene, and the other, it's a prostitute. Do you know who's washing your feet? Well, no one else washed it. She's blessed because she took the role that was necessary for this moment. We miss that because we are looking for the big and miss the moment. You might be one of the, it's going to sound awful, you might be one of the profane, one of the mundane. You might be the ones who pray and send, or you might be one of the ones who sends. It doesn't matter. We're all in this together. Very important. And finally, in obedience, the church releases people to their task. But it's based out of prayer and worship and wisdom that comes from that. Thanks very much. Let's go to the next story now. But we're going to change tack. We're going to go from the NIV, which is the the North Island version of the Bible, sorry, the New International Version of the Bible or the normally incorrect version. And we're going to go to the Massage Version, which I actually like because I really love the way he talks about this. And this is like the first point at which they're released. And you go, well, now they're on the journey. We've got the important role. Let's look for Paul, the apostle who comes. But in fact, it's very, very ordinary and important to see what happens next because the Spirit doesn't tell them what they're commissioned to. He just says, pray, Release them. Let's see where we go. And it says off here, can someone actually read this? Thanks very, very loudly. Thanks, Sam. That'd be really good. <laughs> Note the order. Barnabas and Saul. Right, yeah. Yeah, Salamis. Yeah, Salamis. Yeah, yeah. Where? Where were they? Why did they go there? Mothership. It's what they were. That was normal. Yeah. The message was a Jewish message of a Messiah that's come. You start with people that actually have a framework for understanding. That's what they were used to. God had other plans, but they just didn't know that yet. Karen? They had to 
it's not that long, but it, you know, they did travel long, but 18 miles or something. Yeah. Charlatans, oh, and yet um, this wizard was a bit of a charlatan. Um, a Jewish sorcerer, it says. Very interesting. Sounds a bit of an oxymoron. It's like a Kiwi Aussie. Sort of, Gary, carry on. Bar Jesus. Interesting that that word is son of Jesus. Son of Joshua, son of salvation. It's a common name, by the way. Just, I just wanted to point that out. It sounds really cool. <laughs> but you've actually got this. It's actually, he's actually called Son of Salvation. Okay, let's carry on. He was crooked as crooked as That's what I love about the massage version. He was crooked as a corkscrew. How crooked as a corkscrew? Totally bent, you know. Um, although it does say in um, Ecclesiastes 7.13, who can make straight what God has made crooked? So I don't know. Anyway, next, um, thanks. Um, very interesting because that's what my wife calls me now. Now that I've done my doctor, oh yeah, doctor, no, it'll um, see what I mean. We're all just different names, anyway. But that's—I hope I'm not that, anyway. He knew that this story was actually going to be dangerous. Why did he know the story was going to be dangerous? Because he was going to lose his place. Paul and Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul are just doing what they're called to do. They start with the Jewish synagogue, and then they meet in the synagogue this guy called. But Jesus, or Alimus, which is the term later on, that, that um, it's used twice. There's, there's Bar Jesus, and then this, his second name, Alimus, is, is actually used. And, and they meet him actually while doing their job, and, and all of a sudden they come across opposition. They have been called, they've been commissioned, and you think, well, what would you do? As, a, as, a, as an encourager, I'd go, come on, Bar Jesus. I won't call you Dr. Nidal because that's pretty nasty. But come on, by Jesus, let's, let's just talk about this. You know, and yet there's a sharp thing happens, and it's because what God wants to start doing in the church is very, very unique when the church has to be established into the outermost parts of the earth. This is a long bit. Sam, you doing all right? You okay? You okay? You good? Oh, that's great. Fantastic. <laughs> now, here's, here's something we haven't seen in Paul up till now. This is what I mean. Barnabas, come on, bar Jesus. You know, let's, let's talk about it. What does Paul do? Straight to the throat. It's what the NIV says, you're a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and whiskey. Oh, that's whiskey? No, sorry, trickery. Oh, my goodness. Things are changing. There's something anticipating that's going to come, and this comes not from Barnabas, the encourager, but from Saul Saul, the person who's a fairly new convert, but who was the same Saul that breathed fire and had the capability to stand up against people when he was on the road to Damascus. We see something of the character and the nature of Paul that comes out in this, that God doesn't change your character or nature when he calls you. He calls you with all you've got, whether it be a Barnabas or a Saul. Now, sometimes we need the Barnabases. Saul's create a lot of problems for us as counsellors. Because <laughs> they make people feel really, really bad. And we have to come along behind them and go, yeah, well, we just, let's work this out, you know. But sometimes you need this. Carry on. He was wanting to control the narrative. Now he was having to be controlled by others as he walked through the narrative. Carry on. Next things here. Yeah. When the governor saw what happened, he became a believer, a believer, full of enthusiasm over what they were saying about the master. Four things I see from this. They started in a familiar place. You see, sometimes what we're looking for is we're looking for the spiritual or the unique when we get commissioned and called. But they actually started in the place where Barnabas was from. 
Barnabas was actually a Levite from Cyprus. He was familiar with the place. What's your familiar place? Maybe that's where God wants you to start. Oh, yeah, but I want to do great things for God. It starts where you are. What's in your hand? Where are you? And it doesn't start necessarily with you turning to someone and saying, You child of the devil. Sometimes it just starts from you shutting up and doing a good job. Because that's the first thing God wants us to do, is be his witnesses. Not just share a message that people aren't ready for. Peter says it like this, be ready in an out of season to give an account of your hope when someone asks you. Why will they ask you? Why would someone even want to ask you about your hope? Because they see it in you. You see, and then your words matter. We often throw words and we look for power, not realizing that first God's presence needs to be established in and through the people. Next, thanks. They started with familiar people. Let's carry on. Um, they didn't let opposition deflect them from their task. Two people together are far easier to deal with opposition than one person alone. And next, and this reflects Luke's combination of word and deed. God wants to use you. God wants to call you. This is your story as much as it's their story. You might not be called like Barnabas and Paul to exotic places or to operate in ways that Paul does here, but you're being called and you're being commissioned to first be witnesses wherever you are. You're part of the shift of the narrative away from Jerusalem. But he starts with you and I. He starts with this community and these individuals in this community. Next, thanks. When God calls us, he wants us to be deep readers and deep learners, what I call technicians or mechanics of his word, people who know the depth of who he is, his character and life and his purposes for us, each other and our communities. In order to do that, we start with the word of God, but we also start with each other. We encourage one another. We listen out for one another. We look out for one another. And then we care for one another and we support one another as you go. Thanks, Lucky. Keep going. This is the thing I wanted to leave us with. Who are we in this story? Are you the one still on the journey trying to figure out who this is? Or are you the one that knows your call and commission and are waiting to be released? Have you been released and are you looking for the place and the space? We're each at different points of the story. But I invite you to go back through the week and read that again and say, God, who am I in the story? Am I a releaser or am I being released? Is there somewhere I still need to go to be established? Saul needed time to become the Saul that became the Paul. And he did it in relationship with the Barnabas. Some of you need a Barnabas. Some of you as Barnabases need to become the Barnabas you've been called to be so that you can nurture another person and see them go beyond you. And some of us need to be careful we're not Dr. Know-it-all, <laughs> the bar Jesus that occasionally needs the rebuke. By the way, his blindness wasn't permanent, it was temporary. I wonder what would have happened once he came out of his blindness. Would he be the same arrogant man that he was, or would he actually follow Sergius Paulus and actually recognising he'd stepped over the line that like Paul, he needed a Damascus Road experience. Let me pray for you and we'll finish. Father, I just want to thank you for this community. I, I thank you for Matt and Tanya and, and the, the elders that are leading this amazing space and this place, that they're just wanting to be faithful to what you've called them to, to in this region, in this location. Father, I thank you for every person that is here and, and even is not here, that that they are faithful to the call to be Hope Revolution. And I pray that as we go from this place, we wouldn't see this just as a story of us, uh, of them and them there, but actually of us and now. And that we would glean something from these 
scriptures as we read them that actually reflect into our life and through us to others. And Lord, as we listen and as we worship, as we praise and as we pray, I pray that you would not just give us supernatural words of encouragement, but you would also start to shape and, and call and, and hone that call in each of our lives so that we can go out into your world to be the witnesses you've called us to be in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or feedback, please email us at hello at hoperevolution.church.